Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio Show. Monday, Thursday, 10 till 1. Happy Super Thursday Eve. It's the day before the big election day. So, coming up, Dish United Kingdom, bringing you politics from the four corners of the UK, England, Wales and Scotland. Plus, obviously, Northern Ireland, where they're having their own bit of democracy, although only 38 people deciding the new leader of the DUP and the new first minister there. Uh, that's coming up in just a second. But first, of course, our columnist panel. It's Wednesday, so it must be crampon. It's Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson. Let's talk about uh, divorce. Alice, you've written about the divorce that everyone is talking about. Uh, the slightly surprising uh, news that Bill and Melinda Gates are parting uh, ways, and you've because you've you've interviewed them several times, uh, um, uh, uh, and you've written about them in in the Times today. What what is it that you? What's your take on this? Everyone seems to have slightly oddly. Everyone seems to have a take on sort on a couple's uh, party. I mean, everyone always does, don't they? So even with your friends, you, it's always the ones you think are going to stay together forever that then split up, and you're horrified. But I do think the first time I met Melinda, she talked about sex with Bill, actually, uh, rather extraordinarily, um, because she was trying to promote contraception. So she was talking about how they both use contraception and there was nothing wrong with it. Um, And she's rather amazing. And they both had these twin offices that were identical. And halfway through the interview, she shouted out to Bill because he hadn't gone home in time to do the children's homework. And they just seemed to have a really normal life for billionaires. So he had to do the washing up. Um, you had to take the dog out for a walk. She was obviously quite strict about everything, but they did seem to laugh a lot together. And he was very funny at the end of the interview. And then I spent a few days with him in Ethiopia. And it was the same. Actually, we were both celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary in a few weeks. And he was quite endearing about it all and about her. I mean, unbelievably nerdy. He's the least emotive person you can imagine. But in his own way, really incredibly sweet about Melinda. So it was kind of weird when it happened. I thought, God, of all the couples who are celebrities or famous or billionaires they would be the least likely out of thought to split up of all the billionaires that you know robert were you <laughs> surprised well. by this <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, that's having teenagers you spend your whole time listening to their gossip about you know that's all they they're obsessed by various different billionaires and who splits up with who and who goes out with who i didn't know alice what? hung out with so many billionaires that's what that's what i, took I know 
Don't think. <laughs> well, Phil and I obviously were very close going to Ethiopia. Actually, I was asked to follow him for three days at the um, African summit. So I was amazed like you... that given he's such a nerd that he didn't wear his seatbelt in Addis Ababa and you had to turn to put it on. I'd have thought that's very out of character. I'd have thought he'd have Yeah, I was seatbelt. horrified by that. And also then he wouldn't, once I mentioned it finally, because I was getting quite nervous because we kept almost yeah. running over these goats. Yeah. Kind of, he didn't actually then put it on. And that would have caused a huge yeah. marital argument, I can say, with us. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the seatbelt discussion does go on quite often. I, I don't know what I think about it. I don't know what I think about this, Matt. I suppose I just feel very sad, like most people, sad and surprised. And you sort of read the story and uh, and read Alice's account, thinking, sort of, why are you why are you doing this? Is there something else going on? Uh, Twenty seven years. They seemed, you know, up until what was it, two years ago in in Ethiopia, they seemed to be getting on pretty well, according to Alice. And so, what's gone wrong? I don't buy the idea that it was the pandemic or that it's the fact that Bill's been. Uh, the, the conspiracy theories and so on. You think I think he's probably got a thicker skin than that. Uh, so, who knows? I, I'm just reluctant to comment on other people's marriages. Yeah, but yeah, it, yeah. Seems to, it seems to me uh, it just seems very sad and and mystifying. Uh, we could though say it's actually partly... not sad, couldn't we? I mean, we could say that isn't it extraordinary yeah. that you've got to 27 years? I mean, that's the only you other could. way to look at it. Is God? They've had three children who seem fairly normal at the moment, yeah. which is surprising. And then. Well, or if not, sad, or if not sad, then just weird because, yes. okay, after 27 years, maybe, maybe I don't know, the, the, obvious, the initial spark has possibly died down a little bit, but, but why bother to get divorced? I mean, just live a life and, and uh, <laughs> I mean, they obviously get, no, but seriously, would they get on? So, I don't know, maybe it's to do with the kids growing up. I mean, the couples do that. I don't know how old are the kids. They, I think, are something like 18, 20, and 22. I could actually well, know the GCSE that, in the gates, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of the classic, isn't it? The, 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 youngest, the youngest kid gets to 18, and, and couples, I mean, I, some of our friends have done that. Uh, so maybe, I don't know, uh, a bit worrying, because, I mean, they seem to get on better than I get on with my wife, and we haven't. <laughs> But actually, the thing that really struck me, I mean, you know, aside from, you know, their, their, their marital status, is just a reminder of the extraordinary work that they've done. I mean, in a yeah. different way, last week or the week before, we had Jimmy Wales on, who uh, set up Wikipedia. Uh, and I was joking that he was basically the only person to say, you know, he's got the fifth most visited website in the world. It isn't a billionaire trying to fire himself into space or, or whatever. Yeah. But it's at the other end of the spectrum. We've got Bill Gates, who is a multi-billionaire but isn't firing himself into space. Instead, you know, firing shots into the arms of as many people as he can, you know, and he was doing it pre-pandemic too. And the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is just an extraordinary um, uh, thing thing to have done. And I know you make the point in your, your piece, Alice, that, um, you know, when you've got whatever it is, $127 billion, you probably don't need to squabble too much over who's having what because, you know, a fraction of that would be plenty. But just just celebrating two people who had committed themselves to, to what actually quite a lot of people in their situation just haven't and just don't. Yeah, but that's the extraordinary thing about them is that they've given away so much already and that their whole life... I mean, when I went to Ethiopia uh, with Bill, it was quite extraordinary. He was in this amazing five-star hotel. I was, of course, in the kind of two-star hotel around the corner. But when I went to see him, there was a swimming pool, a gym... Um, you know, beautiful gardens, but he never left his office suite. He just literally spent, you know, every 10 minutes, he had a different African leader in. He was just unbelievably relentless. And it started at seven and finished at 10. And you you realise that to live with someone like that, 
is fairly astonishing. But then Melinda did the same. I mean, they both just worked flat out. They didn't go on holidays very much. You know, they didn't, they didn't seem to have a huge amount of social life. And you thought they're dedicating their lives, really, to saving lives. And they were very competitive about how many lives they'd saved. I mean, he must be the most competitive man in the world. And he was using it to try and see whether he could save more people's lives than other people. And that, in a way, is astonishing. I mean, what a thing to be competitive about rather than, you know, how many cars have I got or, yeah. uh, you know, have I sent more tourists into space or, or whatever? Yeah, it's extraordinary. So, yeah, let's focus on the positive and leave them to their own uh, their own uh, private affairs. Um, I wanted to discuss something else with you, which we touched on briefly uh, on the show yesterday. But there was this um, uh, social media post from Samantha Griffin, who's a, a cousin of Julia James, the, the uh, PCSO who was, who was murdered. And she was asking, where is the uproar about my beautiful cousin? Where's the huge outrage and pouring of despair? Uh, despair? Where were the vigils and protests about her murder? And it sort of uh, obviously draws the contrast, though she didn't directly, but draws the contrast with uh, Sarah Everard and that sort of thing. And I, I don't really know what the answer is, but I thought it was a really interesting question. I think since, since the, I think there has, there has been a small vigil, but nothing sort of on the same scale and not the same sort of national... Um, hand wringing or you know introspection or debate that we had following the Sarah Everard case. I just wonder why, why that is. It just a media thing? Is it a social media thing? What do you think, Robert? Uh, it's a very good question, and uh, it's for the the cousin to pose. Uh, India Knight wrote a good uh, column about yes, this. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, I think, and India made the point that whilst it's it's clear why some murders. Uh, like Sarah Everard's get more attention than, if you like, the, the awful phrase, the kind of run-of-the-mill murder, which is which is somebody uh, out, you know, uh, which is usually somebody known to the, where the victim, uh, where the perpetrator is known to the victim, usually as a result of some sort of domestic abuse. Uh, but that doesn't apply in this case because uh, Julie Jones and uh, and the... And Sarah Everard was, was, if you like, similar, similarly shocking stranger murders. So I don't know. I mean, India made the point, and I think it's a good one, that a lot of people, the, the sort of people who uh, whip up uh, uh, viral uh, campaigns on social media, were able to identify with Sarah in a way that they maybe weren't with uh, Julie. Uh in, the, in where she lived, in terms of her class background and so forth, uh, I, it would be a sh- it would be sad to think that that were the case. But I think there might well be something in that. Uh, but I, I, I'm sorry to sound uh, as I did with the previous the previous subject that I, that I haven't got an answer to this. Uh, <laughs> no, but that's, but yeah, it, that's, but of, that's what's nice it, about having the conversation because it's you know we're not trying yeah. to find answers or have an argument or you know. Sort of winner. What, what do you what do you think, Alice? Is it just down to geography and a generational thing that maybe there are more young people on social media who live in Clapham with whom some of our case resonated? But I mean, there would be plenty of people who you know, middle aged yeah, women who go also, out walking their a, um, dog. And yes, I was going to uh, say she's a dog walker, and there's so many dog walkers. I mean, we know mm. the British are absolutely obsessed by dogs. The amount of dogs we've had in lockdown. You'd have thought that would really resonate. I think it's really strange to see who gets picked up and who doesn't. And I thought it was particularly poignant with Julia Jones when she she was actually, she worked in the domestic violence unit. So she would have all people know that there are, you know, two people are murdered each week in domestic violence cases and the majority are obviously women. And so it, it it's incredibly um, 
it's, it's just an incredibly difficult emotive subject that why we pick up on some and not others and it's not just about looks and they were both you know very good looking women but it shouldn't be about that and it isn't really but it's also you know that the, the amount of boys that get stabbed and killed on the streets in London that are involved in gangs and some of them resonate and some don't and I think it is incredibly sad because if you were the family part of you doesn't want to be caught up in a media swirl but part of you must be thinking why is my daughter child uh, you know mother, grandmother, cousin, not getting that sort of same outpouring of grief. And it must be really, really difficult because it does feel like you're weighing up who deserves more and who's more you know, worthy. And I thought, actually, I always can't bear it in newspapers when they say where they went to universities, if it's if you went to Durham or Oxbridge or you know, mm. some, that they were almost in some way your life was going to be more extraordinary because that's so not true. I mean, that yeah. we should really be weighing up all lives in the same way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I just think it's an interesting question to which there is no good answer, but maybe it's just a, a bit of media self-reflection, which I'm not always terribly good at, but um, I thought it was an interesting thing to raise. Uh, one last thing, obviously, um, uh, Super Thursday, as literally everyone is calling it uh, tomorrow. Um, uh, it seems like, to some extent, Keir Starmer is trying to get his excuses in early, but the, I want to discuss in particular this concept of long Corbyn. I don't know if you've come across this. <laughs> There's a sort of strain of people, on, particularly on social media, and I was looking at it, it seems to have been bubbling around on social media for, for some time, or, or possibly almost go back to the end of last year. But this suggestion that, that Labour is suffering from long Corbyn, the long-term uh, uh, ill effects of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, which are taking a long time to shake off, which is presumably you know, making them... Um, uh, struggle in the elections this week. Uh, meanwhile, you've got the Corbynistas already out and about, albeit off the record at the moment, saying Keir Starmer's going to have to resign if he loses Hartlepool. Even <clears throat> Jeremy Corbyn held Hartlepool and all that. Um, I just thought, wondered what you made of the... How serious do you think the uh, the effects of uh, long Corbyn are, Robert? Uh, I, yeah, I think that's... That, that, I hadn't come across the phrase before, but I can I, I, I see the, uh, the, the phenomenon... Uh, I think Jeremy Corbyn was a disastrous leader for the Labour Party, evidently. I wouldn't think he particularly was uh, in the northern seats that they lost uh, as regards Brexit and as regards his uh, perceived, uh, and I think, actual lack of patriotism. Uh, I think it's probably even longer than that. I think the Labour Party is being hollowed out as a, as a, as a force in, uh, in, in local civic life. Uh, I think it's been going on for years. I think they've been taking their voters for granted. Um, I mean, I'm in Hackney, which is a Labour stronghold. We haven't had a single piece of election literature from the Labour Party. So it's not just it's not just people uh, up in Hartlepool who, who, might, who feel taken for granted. It would be uh, people elsewhere as well. And uh, why should people keep on voting for the same party forever when they don't feel that they've been uh, represented by them or, or, or contacted by them or, uh, or, or, or really got much in common with them anymore? So I think that's I think it's yes, it's long Corbyn, but it's long something else, which I can't quite think of at the moment, uh, which is <laughs> which is it's a long decline is what it is. Uh, these I mean, the Labour Party and the trade unions were, you know, they were serious local forces in, the, in, in, in many in many areas, particularly the Hartlepool and so on. And they just haven't been for a long time. And they, they, this is this we're seeing the effects. And Alice, I suppose it's partly a reflection of Keir Starmer's, uh, whether whether it's, you know, you can blame the fact that he's been uh, hampered by the pandemic or just the sort of nature of the fact that there isn't a sort of big, explosive, uh, zippy, zingy, you know, campaign going on around him. 
the, the, it, it, we end up talking about Jeremy Corbyn again, uh, rather than uh, uh, Keir Starmer himself, that he hasn't sort of um, fired the, the, the imagination. And so it's all just about sort of long-term decline, his position on Brexit, Jeremy Corbyn, long-term Labour neglect. And uh, after a year in the job, he hasn't really sort of shaken all that off yet. No, I think it's been really hard that the vaccination programme, which is fantastic for the rest of us, but that it has worked so effectively because that is going to drive everything, that people feel that we're in a better position than most people around the world. So that's really hard on Keir Starmer. But on the other hand, he does look like a William Hague or a Michael Howard. or It's, it's that sense that some people in opposition just can't do it. It's very, very difficult. Tony Blair was an exception, really, in that he just knew how to have that turn of phrase. You know, sort of you know, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. He absolutely knew where he was going and what to do and how to approach being in opposition. And it's, it's, it's almost impossible. But um, you know, I, I, I think if I was Keir, I would be saying, actually, it, it's Jeremy Corbyn, because otherwise, what else do you say? You know, do, do you just say, look, I'm just hopeless. I'm just, I haven't got any traction. You can't, can you? You're just, you know, even... going to blame it on the predecessor. Leaving Blair aside, even under weaker leaders, uh, you know, Michael Foote, Neil Kinnock, uh, Gordon Brown, Labour held places like Hartlepool. It didn't, if there'd been a mayor in Tees Valley when they were around, it would have been a Labour mayor uh, or the West Midlands, you know, that, so that, yeah. this is, a, this is, these are major, major structural shifts. Labour Party's losing its, its space. They don't, they, they've been loyal for a long time, but they're not anymore. And I suppose the question is, because we t- talked about this about with uh, Danny Finkelstein yesterday, and he was saying, you know, there's lots of focus on the Tories making gains in the north, but the, the, the fact that Tories are losing places like London uh, doesn't get talked about as much. And I think that's partly because the Tories are, so, you know, the, the Tories are, are moving into new areas and making gains, mm. so maybe it doesn't matter they're losing. Whereas L- Labour Party seems like they're, they're consolidating uh, their support in the areas where they're strong, but they're not making any new... Yeah new yeah. gains anywhere and I suppose that's but, the, oh, that's if the you, question if you've got a Tory mayor in the Tees Valley who's just taken Teesside Airport into public ownership it's hard to think what Labour can do about that <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean he's, yeah. well maybe he's, it's just, just a seismic shift I mean that's what I feel yeah. I feel that actually people haven't got allegiances in the same way anymore and it's actually really interesting that you know if you yeah. talk about Boris Johnson in London now and he was mayor there that there is a, you know people find him really toxic whereas you know, if you go outside London, you just don't get that same sort of visceral dislike of him. They actually, they are really far warmer towards him. So, I mean, maybe Keir Starmer just has to change and look around and, and, and try and get new voters. That's going to be the answer. Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson then, of course, you can read them in The Times. You just need to get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's Dish United Kingdom. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. From Land's End to John O'Groats, St David's to Southend-on-Sea, and Belfast to Bognor Regis. England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. (laughs) 
This is Disunited Kingdom on Times Radio. Yes, it's at that time of the week where we always get politics in the four corners of the UK, but it's a big one today. Happy Super Thursday Eve. Only one more sleep until the biggest set of elections for, what is it, half a century? Don't forget, hang your election leaflets by the fire. Don't forget to leave a mince pie out for the returning officer. And here to tell us what goodies they're expecting to find waiting for them in the ballot box at the head of their bed. Uh, Hannah Al-Othman is a news reporter for the Sunday Times based in Manchester. Hi, Hannah. Hi, hi, Matt. Hi, nice. Thanks for uh, joining us. Kieran Andrews, the Scottish political editor of the Times in Scotland, uh, obviously. Morning, Kieran. Good morning, Matt. Uh, Sam Cook is a presenter at Cardiff TV in Wales. Morning, Sam. Good morning, Boradar, Matt. Boradar to you too. And Gwanya McKinney is a senior broadcast journalist at UO5 Belfast, one of our sister stations. Good morning, Gwanya. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Right. Well, it's very exciting, isn't it? For uh, Well, at least for political nerds like us. Where should we start first? Let's go to Scotland, I think. Kieran Andrews, um, you've got some new polling for the time today. The last uh, poll uh, ahead of the elections tomorrow. Uh, any big surprises? I think the possibly the, the biggest surprise of note is the actually the surge of the Scottish Greens, which seems like a strange thing to talk about, given that they will still be the, the fourth largest party. But the Scottish Greens are, of course, for their best ever result in this election, moving from four members of the Scottish Parliament to 13. And why that makes a difference is because it will really enhance the number of pro-independence MSPs after after Thursday's election. It's on a knife edge as to whether the SNP will return a majority. Our poll projects that they'll have a majority of seven, but that, you know, is, is at odds with some others that are around about here because of the nature of the Scottish system. It's really difficult to call. But this surge in green support means that there will almost certainly be more pro-independence MSPs in the next parliament than there's ever been before. And given how much pressure Nicola Sturgeon will then try to exert on Boris Johnson after such a result, I think that really is quite crucial. Uh, and we had the uh, Times Radio focus group on the show yesterday speaking to uh, people who were planning to vote for the SNP but who'd voted against independence in 2014 uh, and weren't very impressed by the idea that Nicola Sturgeon might uh, suddenly whip out an independence referendum uh, were she to be returned as First Minister this week. And presumably the same will be true with some Greens. There'll be some people voting for the Green Party because they... They agree with the Green Party on other issues. They want to put the environment at the top of the agenda. Um, is, there's a balancing act, isn't there, particularly for Nicola Sturgeon, to, to take all of her support with her. There are some people who just think that she might be the best person to be First Minister and don't necessarily want to be thrown into a big row about independence next week. Well, what opinion polls have consistently shown and what, what was highlighted by the focus today as well, was that there's quite a lot of people in Scotland who are very impressed with Nicola Sturgeon's performance, particular communication skills during the pandemic, and who really warmed to her, who, who decided that she was doing a good job as First Minister, but are, are really not keen on the, the question of independence. And I think that has, you know, the SNP's internal polling and focus groups must be saying the same thing, because we've seen their message on the Constitution really shift um, over the course of this campaign more towards uh, Scotland's right to choose, and Nicola Sturgeon ever more pushing a referendum into the, into the long grass. She's consistently said she wants it in the first half of the Parliament, so before the end of 2023. But that has now shifted into a, 
once the crisis has passed um, and and just a lot softer. And the Scottish Greens have been even, you know, even more relaxed on a date, just saying some point over the course of the next five years. So there is a realisation between those two parties that people may be voting for them, but that's not necessarily a vote for independence or even a second referendum. Yeah, and that, that, that was coming across quite strongly in the focus. Although, interestingly, when you put the suggestion that Boris Johnson might then try to block a second referendum, uh, that seemed to, you know, that uh, triggered a backlash as well. So, yeah, that sort of Scotland's right to choose is really important. Yeah, we might, um, we might uh, not want it, but don't tell us we can't have it. Exactly right, exactly right. In fact, so the BBC last night hosted the last leadership debate, uh, despite every leader saying the only thing they wanted to care about, they, they were interested in was the pandemic recovery. These, the, obviously, the question of independence kept cropping up somehow. Let's take a listen. And if people on Thursday re-elect me as First Minister, then I'm going to be back at work behind my desk in St Andrew's House on Monday, taking the decisions to steer this country through the pandemic. That is my priority. It's what I've focused almost every waking moment on over the past year. But I'm... I'm on the stage saying I don't support a referendum, I don't support independence, and I want people to choose something different. I want them to choose us to focus on a national recovery in the next parliament. I don't want this to be the argument for the next five years. I do want to focus on recovery. Well, he does not want another independence referendum when we should be united in our recovery aims, but... Nicola Sturgeon's own MP, Richard Thompson, said the Scottish Government has been quite clear okay, well, we'll that the Nicola other Sturgeon... route to that is simply to go ahead with a referendum. Yeah, that's what the SNP are saying at this well, election. That's not what it says and in their manifesto the or in their 11-point plan. Well, it is. Which one is right? Will, if the SNP have a majority after this election, they will, hold, will there be a referendum or not? They will hold an illegal wildcat referendum. No, we that's won't. What, all right. Uh, on and on it went. Uh, uh, just, before we move on to other bits of the UK... Um, uh, Kieran, what's your hunch? You just talk to see what the polls are. Where are we going to be once all the votes have been counted and the complicated STV system has been calculated? Uh, where will we be? Are we heading for an, a big showdown and Nicola Sturgeon, big majority, and demanding a second referendum? My hunch is that it will all come down to turnout. There's still a sneaking suspicion in my gut that the SNP won't quite get a majority on their own. I think they'll probably fall short of that. Um but that there will certainly be a pro-independence majority, which means that talk of a, a second independence referendum is not going away. Thank you, Kevin. We'll come back to you in a sec. Let's head to uh, Wales now, where uh, the Welsh Parliament, the Senate, is up for election tomorrow too. Uh, Sam Cook is there for us. Uh, Sam, what's the, what's the latest polling there suggesting? What, what, what's going to happen? Yes, the Senev. Um, so obviously today, the final day of campaigning um, and a recent ITV poll is actually showing that the Conservatives have gained support. Um, now, now, this is quite interesting because in Wales, um, Labour have held the Welsh Parliament for, uh, well, since devolution, in uh, which, which was 22 years ago. Um, the way I look at it uh, this year, the, the campaign was always going to be a little bit different for all the all the different parties. And uh, this year in particular, it's felt very, very low key. Um, you know, you, I, I, the only thing that really kind of comes to mind when you when you think about it is you, you walk down the street and you see all the campaigners, posters uh, everywhere. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting this year because um, r r there is kind of there is the thought that Labour could match um the share of the vote that they saw five years ago. Um, however, they would still lose seats uh, due to um, a strong performance from, from the Tories. Um, so, you know, it, it, Labour has um, our current First Minister, Mark Drakeford. Mark Drakeford has come under some scrutiny uh, during the 
current pandemic. Um, there are some people who love him, some people who hate him. He's a, he's a bit like Marmite in that respect. Um, and then, of course, you've got um, Andrew retweet Dave, and RT Davis. Um, <laughs> and um, but yeah, uh, he he himself he's promised five new hospitals and an M4 relief road uh, with, with a price tag of 1.6 billion pound. Um, so in that respect, kind of looking at what he's offering, I, I don't think it's too unrealistic. And then, of course, you've got Plaid Cymru, who uh, are all for independence. But um, Adam Price himself uh, is fighting for he, his own constituency internationally. But um, they are actually down, according to my notes, they are down by four points. So who knows? That's interesting. Is interesting. Just on the on the subject of the Conservatives, it's really. I mean, there's also been lots of focus on you know, the Red Wall and Hartley Paul and all of that sort of thing. But um, the Conservatives in the latest poll uh, for uh, ITV Wales has got the Conservatives on twenty nine percent. If you go right the way back to when the first Welsh Assembly elections were happening, they were on fifteen sixteen percent. I mean, the Conservatives making inroads into sort of Welsh Labour territory. It, that's yeah. that's the sort of it goes unremarked upon uh, in a way that you know northern England you know there's been this, this sort of whole cottage industry set up analysing that. Mm. Well, it's interesting actually because um, the the Welsh Conservatives have certainly uh, gained a little bit more support since the since the 2019 election. Um, in, in that election, they actually took seats in in Wrexham, the Vale of Clwyd South, and Delyn, um, and kind of I think that they are fighting to kind of um, maintain. Uh, those seats. Um, uh, meanwhile, the Tories themselves, obviously, with the support that they're getting in Westminster, um, they're trying to kind of convert them into uh, Senate victories. So, um, kind of, um, and of course, we've got actually Rishi Sunak, the the Chancellor of the Exchequer. He's actually in North Wales today, um, trying to keep those seats that he gained. Uh, the, the party gained in the 2019 election. So um, it kind of is all eyes on whether who who is going to who is going to take that uh, glorious first minister place. <laughs> well, we'll find out. We'll find out when the votes have been counted. Right, having talked to them about a bit about Northern England, we might as well go there now. We can speak to Hannah Lothman, uh, Sunday Times reporter, based in Manchester. Uh, lots of talk about the hat trick, as it's been described, uh, Hannah. Basically, the we had three polls out this week, and so this has now become the hat trick. The, the polls showing that the Tories are on course to win the Hartlepool by election and the mayoralty races in Tees Valley and the West Midlands. Um, obviously, no great surprise uh, that everyone seems to expect uh, Labour to keep the uh, uh, Greater Manchester uh, mayoralty where you're there. Um, but the, the, do you think it's, the, we are putting too much focus on this so called hat trick? I don't know really. I mean, the trouble with a lot of these contests is there's not much of a, of a contest in a lot of these seats. So I think West Midlands and Tees Valley were, were always the, the most interesting ones. Um, but I was never really in any doubt, particularly with Tees Valley. I mean, Ben Houchin's really popular. Um, we saw, you know, the Tories gaining support there in 2019 um so i don't you know i don't think that's such a disaster for for labor to lose that one because never really in my view thought thought that was one they'd win um i think really hartlepool is, is the bigger problem for labor in terms of optics because at the general election it, we had Corbyn and we had Brexit and they were sort of given as the twin reasons why people turned away from Labour and towards the Conservatives. And both of those are gone now. Um, so it, it 
I mean, yeah, Brexit's still there, but it's not the sort of burning issue that it was um, because it's been seen to be done. So I think it, you know, it really poses questions for for Labour. I think it it, it will it will worry um, Keir Starmer because uh, I mean it. it it seems like this is a, a sort of, is this an irreversible decline? You know, how do they win these voters back? Yeah, and that's, I suppose that's the message across the, the across the board, isn't it? You know, the Labour struggling to get even second place in Scotland, having previously won Scotland. Uh, some some questions about um, whether or not they're going to hold on in Wales. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? If, if Labour lose Hartlepool, there are plenty of other seats across uh, Northern England, especially, where Labour MPs might start being a bit worried about their futures? Yeah, and I think, you know, the the thing that's happening now is, is Labour is becoming really sort of a party for people in cities um, or, you know, that's where its voters are. And I think that that's really a, a, a problem for them. You know, the, these Labour heartlands, as they were, are just not anymore. Um and I, I, it's, I think it's hard because they are trying to appeal to these sort of young, um, not always young, but, you know, these, these sort of liberal city voters. Um, and then, but then also in doing that, they seem to be alienating what what was once their, their traditional voter base. And I think, you know, a lot of that was pinned on the leadership and the political situation, but it, it seems to run a bit, deeper than that i think is what hartlepool is showing us yeah i think i think you're probably right although i'm, I'm becoming obsessed with this concept of long corbyn and uh, the ill effects of that still uh, still harming the labor party which well, seems to be seems to be the latest uh, the latest explanation i mean that that's interesting actually because i remember i, I wrote a piece just around um tory party conference and a lot of people thought that Jeremy Corbyn was still the leader. That I, I was just doing vox pops, and you know that they, they, they it really hadn't cut through that Labour had a new leader. And the reason why they were giving for why they wouldn't vote Labour, these former Labour voters, was because of Corbyn still. Really um, interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's uh, yeah. I mean, that's the very first thing that Keir Starmer needs to do is explain that. Um, <laughs> he's now in charge. Uh, right, very quickly, let's go, let's head to uh, Northern Ireland now. Northern Ireland not having any elections tomorrow, but refusing to be left out of the election yes. fund. They're having a, a leadership contest instead um, to replace uh, Arlene Foster, who's quit as the first minister and leader of the DUP. Um, but uh, Goynia, it's not um, it's not an election. Is uh, a leadership election? Is others might know it. In the, what, how many people exactly are going to choose the the new first minister of Northern Ireland? So we have a grand total of 36 able to uh, vote on who becomes the next leader of the DUP. And I'm saying the next leader of the DUP because the two contenders, which is Sir Geoffrey Donaldson and our Agriculture Minister Edwin Poots, both have, Edwin Poots has said that he actually does not want to become First Minister of Northern Ireland. He's quite happy to become party leader and then retain his role as Agriculture Minister. And apparently um, commentators have been telling us that Sir Geoffrey is much the same because he is currently in the, he's the MP for Lagan Valley. And there are concerns that if he were to step back from that seat to become first minister, he could potentially lose it to the Alliance party, which would be a, a huge loss for the DUP. So um, yeah, next Friday, 
36 of the party's MPs and MLAs will vote on who leads the party, but we're not quite clear yet on whether they will choose to split the positions of First Minister and DUP leader. If they do, what does that sort of, that, what does that mean? Because if Arlene Foster at times struggled to carry her party uh, for various reasons, whether it was sort of Brexit related or domestic policy or social policy. Um, if you're not the party leader, but you are the first minister, how can you go into uh, a meeting with Sinn Féin and not be the person who's ultimately going to carry the, the day with your own party? Well, that's the thing. That's the, And the thing with these two men that are running, there isn't a massive amount of difference between them. Um, the thing that they're both running on and promoting is that they want to get rid of the Northern Ireland Protocol. But how exactly they'll do that isn't isn't really clear, you know? <laughs> it's, that, that's that's so far taxed government. many minds. It's taxed yes, many minds, yeah. the, idea of, uh, and the idea of doing we, that. We too are, are baffled by that because... Uh, Poots has said that he would like a judicial review, but that's already taken place. And then uh, Sir Jeffrey hasn't said what his tactic would be to get rid of the protocol. So I suppose they're sort of wary of stepping into the exact same shoes that Arlene Foster is leaving because they do have to be seen to come out pretty strong. Um, they have to have a strong position on the protocol, but at the same time, the ability to work in partnership with Sinn Féin. So we're not really sure how their electorate will choose to go. I, I suppose a large amount of it will come down to, you know, how, how likeable each MP or yeah, each MLA finds personality. them. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I, suppose, mm -hmm. I suppose that's the thing. If you've only got an electorate of 36, you can probably uh, yeah. butter some of them up. <laughs> uh, I, I find it very hard to believe anyone would go into a, a, a party leadership campaign promising to do something on Brexit without explaining exactly how. That seems so unlikely. Uh, right, in a sec, I want to ask you all for some lighter, fun stories from your patches, just so it's not all just about uh, elections and all that. We'll do that next on Times Radio. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. Yes, we're doing Disunited Kingdom, where we get politics from the four corners of the UK. We've done the elections, we've done the leadership contest. Now let's have a quick whip around these fair aisles for uh, something slightly more fun. Who's got a story they want to kick us off with uh, from your patch? I think, Matt, given that we're in Scotland, we're about to have an endurance race of two or three days while we're waiting for the results to filter through because of COVID restrictions. We're not getting them overnight on Thursday anymore. What caught my eye this week was uh, Anna Rutherford, uh, an endurance runner who beat the women's record for completing the 212-mile Southern Upland Way by 17 hours this week, which is a fantastic achievement. But unlike most people who are used to surviving elections on copious amounts of coffee and sweeties, she <laughs> got by on stock cubes to replenish her salt and oh. energy levels, which, yeah... That's pretty great. What is your secret to election night? Uh, I suppose if you're not actually staying up, it's not quite the same, is it? Mine, mine was always um, uh, bananas and jelly babies. Uh, what's, what's your secret, uh, Kieran? Well, I actually, the best one I had was in the 2015 general election where my mum made a massive box of tablet and I took it into the, the newspaper offices where I worked and then along to a press conference the next day where I made myself extremely popular with uh, the other journalists <laughs> who were needing a sugar hit to keep them going after 24-odd hours of uh, without any sleep. Which, if you don't know, it's, that's, it's like fudge, isn't it? it 
for the benefit except of people who don't know what's tub. Yeah. Except with even more sugar. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, what about anyone else? Uh, that's uh, uh, Sam. How are you going to be staying awake? Have you got a fun story from Wales? I haven't got a fun, well, my fun story isn't about staying awake. Um, my fun story is all about um, the, the thing that has hooked the nation over the past uh, couple of weeks. Um, of course, referring to Line of Duty. Uh, for anyone listening who uh, hasn't seen the finale, the finale, the finale, finale spoilers are incoming. <laughs> um, but um, of course, um, at the end of the series, um, Joe Davidson, who has been looking a little bit sus throughout the entire uh, run this year. Um, she was, of course, put up in witness protection. Now, little did I realise this house where they filmed this particular scene was actually in South Glamorgan in Wales. And I, I remember well, thinking when I was watching it, I remember thinking, oh, I mean, she, she's lucked out compared to Jill Bigelow in the last series, hasn't she? Because <laughs> she had a fantastic... A lovely... I, I, we all want it. <laughs> I was going to say, we all want to get into witness protection if, uh, if that's the house that they're providing uh, us with, with a wonderful dog. Oh, with a wonderful dog, that's what I was going to say, because we've got a golden retriever as well, and I suddenly thought, maybe I've been living in witness protection, and I had no idea, maybe that's the thing, witness protection, <laughs> you get given a golden retriever, that's how it works. Um, uh, you must have, uh, you must have a about... lovely house, Matt. Well, I don't live in London, so it helps. So, uh, uh, <laughs> so, so it means that you know I can. I'm not living in a in a rabbit hutch. Uh, what about um, uh, Hannah or Gornia? Have you got anything fun in your patch? Well, I think everybody here is just still living in the days of having our our restrictions lifted a, a little bit. I think uh, I was driving around Belfast on Friday whenever our pubs were allowed to serve people outdoors, and it was a complete festival atmosphere everywhere. Even though. Funnily enough, nobody seemed to be getting in anywhere because the queues were an average of, you know, two to three hours long. I think everybody was just so delighted to be able to actually leave their house that they didn't mind two standing. To three, two to three hours oh, to get a drink. Oh, to get inside. That's to get wow. inside and get a table. So I've heard of people waiting four hours is the oh. record that I've heard so far. <laughs> so I'd say... Uh, Trips to the off-licence were, were most likely made while you're waiting. That's incredible. That's incredible. Um, I did actually realise you could you could go inside, because obviously in, in uh, England, uh, yeah, it's still yeah. very much outside, which hasn't necessarily been conducive to the weather that we've been having this week. What about you, Hannah? Would you would you queue for four hours to get into a pub? Um, no, probably not. No, probably <laughs> not. Um, no but we, we've done all right up here um I think I don't know maybe people are less keen to sit outside with the weather but I've not really struggled um too much to get in anywhere well that's good that's good any any other top tips of staying up uh at overnight for uh election night anyone apart from just a massive pile of sugar which seems to be Kieran suggested um I would say don't um don't peak too soon um so with the caffeine uh because this is always my problem that you take you know you have loads and loads of coffee and in my case diet coke and then yeah I always time it really badly and then sort of crash so I think sort of little and often would be my recommended approach 
Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing. Uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, is available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 